This is Unspecial, a show about the inequities in special education. On today's episode, I've sat down with Leah Council, a special education teacher in the Yonkers Public School. So thank you so much for meeting with me. It is my pleasure. So I first, I guess my first question is for you, if you could just tell me just like a little bit of like about your background and kind of your involvement in education. So this is my 21st year of teaching here in Yonkers Public Schools. A certified special education teacher where um, I have been doing resource room probably for the last 10 years or so. The way that I got into education was basically because I was fed up with how I thought the education system had changed from uh, when I had um, gone to school, right? And then I had children and I recognized that my children didn't really have the same experiences, right? And so I have six children, um, two of which had IEPs. One uh, designated um, LD, which is learning disabled, um, with you know just um, difficulty processing information, and another um, speech and language impaired. And what I realized is that they had their own set of struggles in terms of having access to mm-hmm. uh, curriculum. Um, and to um, different opportunities, as well as my other children who were in gen ed classes, they had their own set of issues. And my husband got tired of me complaining about it one day. And he said, listen, you know, you fight for everything else, fight for this. You know, um, I don't care what you do, as long as you do not increase the amount of bills you have to pay, you know, (laughs) do you basically. And so I retired. from a very lucrative position. And I went and got my master's in education. So that was my trajectory into wanting to get into education. I was just fed up as a parent. Um, I am certified in common branch, which is K through six, as well as special education. I have um, extensions in gifted. Um, I'm certified in ESL. And I am also an autism specialist. So. The um, abundance of my work really has been around um, disenfranchised populations or diverse populations. Mm -hmm. Because uh, for me, I think that those are the groups and the students that need the most support. So currently, are you, you're currently working in special education? Yes. So I think the main things that I'm kind of looking at, and I've talked to a bunch of different educators, it's how there's not really this there's no advocation for kids in special education, how there's a large disconnect between the gen ed population, the special education population. So going off your variety of experience, do you think that that's a common issue that you've seen too? Yes and no. And the reason I say yes and no is I think it depends really on, you know, who the special education teacher is, right? So Mm -hmm. we play a really important role in, trying to make sure that the services and the curriculum that our students should be exposed to, they are being exposed, right? So mm-hmm. um, you have a really good focused special educator, then those barriers that are inherently there or you know, um, are there just because of whatever the, the local um, you know, um, domain has dictated, 
I think that special education teacher or the IEP teacher is able to penetrate that, right? So that's, that's just been my experience. Um, I think as a whole, there tries to be an alignment between what a gen ed curriculum is and then what the modifications for a special education curriculum are. But I think that's, that's what's broken. That there's mm-hmm. never, it hasn't really been like a clear alignment. So for example, um, when we, or when I went through my teacher training program, you know, I was taught about, you know, the different laws and the different mandates, and this is why you need special education. And, you know, um, then I took a class in methods and materials, but it's a lot more than methods and materials, right? It's really about a culture. It is about Mm -hmm. understanding diverse populations and what, um, is requisite within those populations and then how you take that understanding, become culturally responsive to those diverse populations and then try to bring in the curriculum, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, so I was looking at how like special education is like this rich culture, like it is a community and how a lot of times like it's not really seen as that way um, and how currently it's kind of used as a way to segregate students in school typically mm-hmm. and how like the, there's a lot of inequities and um, the representation special education so from your experience can you do you ever see that or can you kind of speak to that in any sort of way oh absolutely so I mean that's one of the things that I, I think um, has really come into the awareness of many people in education Um, as well as our state education uh, department in New York State, as well as on the federal level. There is a disproportionate number of black and brown children in special education, with the preponderance being black males. Um, Mm -hmm. This is caused for a myriad of reasons. One being that oftentimes materials that are, are presented are not culturally responsive, right? And I don't necessarily think that students necessarily learn differently because of their race or culture. I just believe that information has to be presented differently to children based on their race and culture. And so I think that that's a big problem. I also think that because of the lack of oversight, you know, so we have these laws, right? And federal law IDAA says, okay, listen, you know, we have to make sure that students with disabilities or students that learn differently or process differently are given access to a free and appropriate public education, you know, that mirrors that of their non-disabled peers, right? And that's great. Mm -hmm. But then there's really no consistent oversight. And so the federal government allows the states to determine what that looks like, right? And the states then allow districts to determine what that looks like. And I'm pretty sure that the way that special education is managed and monitored and implemented in Bronxville is than in Yonkers. Um, and one of, one of the main reasons is because oftentimes when you deal with disenfranchised populations, they don't necessarily always know their rights or always exercise their rights, right? And parents being a primary vehicle to really push for the services of their students don't necessarily always know what their rights are or um, are comfortable expressing their rights. Like if we look at Bronxville, so the student population is 82% white. And how if you look at the 
um, ethnic makeup of the special education resource rooms, the majority of diversity in Bronxville is in the special education classrooms. Do you think that's coming from the stigma that's kind of also that's been developed in the in different among different races and how like I, I kind of looked into how typically white parents think that special education is this awful thing and they're trying if their kid is diagnosed with it they're trying to move their kid to a different school where they can be specialized in that or just there's sort of the shame that comes with special education. Yeah, so you know that's interesting, right? Because I agree that there is a stigma, right? Mm-hmm. But there's this irony attached because there are a lot of parents who are in a position of privilege, you know, um, white parents, that oftentimes, and it has been documented, will go to try to get their students um, classified or diagnosed mm-hmm. as having ADD or ADHD, mm-hmm. able to receive certain services and benefits that um, are aligned with special education services, right? And so yeah. um, in that respect, it's not necessarily seen as a stigma because it's like, okay, listen, my student is going to be able, my child is going to be able to get extended time on the SAT and who mm-hmm. wouldn't do that, you know, or um, my child is going to be able to uh, be able to get extended time in an AP class, right? And so on the one hand, there are parents that actually go out and seek this, but on the other hand, there is this stigma that, okay, here, this is yet another thing to separate you and to say that you are less than. And I think that you really see that more in the minority communities dealing with the black and brown children because not only do they have so many other things in our society that points to you being different, now they have this classification, right? And this Mm -hmm. classification is quite often done when um, teachers identify a student as being different um, or a student as being disruptive. Mm -hmm. As if having an IEP and having modifications to the curriculum is going to change behavior. You know, sometimes Mm -hmm. it will, but that shouldn't be where we first look. Yeah. And so sort of how now special education is manipulated by different wealth groups and how like in a more wealthy community, it's been manipulated to become like this resource, but in underprivileged communities, it's kind of almost like a disservice. Like, have you ever seen special education been more of a disservice to a student rather than an asset? Oh, absolutely. Um, And I think that that's one of the things that I kind of struggle with in my position because I have always looked at special education as an opportunity for students to have differentiated instruction, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a a term that educators have been using for years, right? How do we look at materials, curriculum, um, things that are produced, um, materials, anything, How do we look at those and create those, prepare those, share those for our students so that they can learn in the best way possible, right? So for me, Mm -hmm. that's what special education does. However, it is often characterized, and and I have seen that this is almost like, you know, like the road to motel, right? You check in and you don't check out. It's like once you are, you know, classified as having a disability, oftentimes it's very difficult for students to come out because it's almost like, a self-fulfilling prophecy. If it's noted that the student doesn't read well, then 
anytime a student has a reading mishap, oh, student doesn't read well. You know, um, there's a situation okay. that um, I'm dealing with right now and for confidentiality reasons, I can't really go into details, but for example, there is a student of mine that um, was deemed to read below expected grade level. And so the teacher of this student, one of the classroom teachers, content teachers of the student went to an administrator and said, oh, this student is not reading well. Let's put the student in a Title I reading class, even though the student is a resource student. Mm -hmm. So rather than saying, okay, this is a student that already received services, let me communicate with the IEP teacher to see what strategies or interventions we can, you know, work on together to bring the kid up. It was like, mm, this kid already has an IEP. This kid already is behind. So you know what? Let's just give, you know, let's put this kid in, in, in this batch. It's almost as if once students have IEPs, they are no longer looked at as individual students with individual, unique um, educational and academic needs and more or less, okay, here's yet another thing to like add to their list of inabilities. Yeah, and I think that's probably very psychologically damaging for the kid to be told that they're diagnosed with some learning disability and that's kind of become like this label that they're stuck with and probably would discourage them from working harder to just their own educational growth and educational path. Yeah, you know, it's one of the, you know, like we have to look at special, edu special education as a program and not a placement, right? For far yeah. too long, it was identified as a placement, you know, coming mm -hmm. out of, you know, the horror stories of like Willowbrook, um, which is way before your time. Um, and um, where students that were different or had learning disabilities, regardless of how, um, severe or not, were not able to be educated with their peers, right? And so mm -hmm. education was always seen as a placement, okay? You're going, like when I went to high school, there was a room. This is where all the yeah. special education kids went, they went there. But it's not a placement, right? It's a program like anything else. It is a program like um, a student that might need braces, right? you have a student that needs braces, you're going to go to a dentist and you're going to be put into some type of dental brace program where you're going to wear them either 12 months or 18 months or 24 months until there is a correction made and the desired outcome is achieved, right? It's the same yeah. thing with special ed. We need to look at it in terms of short-term, which is what the annual review process is supposed to be. Look at it short-term. These are the things that, that we see are going on. This is what we need to implement to move the student from point A to point B. And then of course, funding, you know, uh, it, it has been stated that uh, being in special education is um, financially um, rewarding because of the cost per pupil. And so I don't know, is there really such a, a, a quick um, desire to, to get students out of special ed? Because I can tell you the amount of money that is allocated per pupil, and, and I work across the state, throughout mm -hmm. the state. 
I have been to very few districts where I could say, wow, they're really doing a really good job with their special education program. You know, mm -hmm. um, the, the materials that students get um, are often out, outdated or inappropriate. You know, again, if you look at it through the lens that I do, where it's really individualized and differentiated, then, you know, I might not be able to order 15 titles of one book. I might have to get three titles of one book and five titles of another because this is what the student needs, right? I might need to spend a little more time, you know, with the student in this area and not in this area, but oftentimes the special education budget, like all other line items is just spent with a broad brush and not necessarily, you know, very specific and specified or individualized. Mm -hmm. And I think that even how Bronxville is supposed to be viewed as like this very privileged school with a lot of funding, yet when we look at even where the special education classrooms are in the school and how they're in the basements and typically don't have windows when the construction was happening and exactly. the kids were right against the windows of the construction. It's like, even though we see the schools wealthy, it's like there's still this large disparity between the gen ed population, special education population, just in where their rooms are. Yes. And like the type of games and toys that they have. Exactly. Yes. Mm -hmm. So is there one student or experience that you would say that stands out to you the most? In terms of what? Because I have lots. <laughs> I think, um, I think in terms of special education, just being needed of a reform in order to help this student? So years ago, before I was a resource teacher, I was a self-contained teacher. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's really important, I think about special education, again, is really getting, you know, to, to not only know your students, but to know um, how to approach them. And I think that's really like key in every classroom. But when it comes to special education, you know, I think that students need to feel as though they're not different than anyone else, right? And so sometimes yeah. you spend a little more time doing that. So long story short, I had a student that um, was frustrated um, just because three years behind um, grade level, um, not able to really communicate needs and desires, frustrated academically, had been bounced from school to school within our district and had become angry. And it was viewed as though this is a student that is learning disabled, that has an emotional disability, that is, that is angry. Not that the root cause of the anger is the frustration because of. So the student came and was placed in my class after, it was, after he was removed from another school. And, you know, I treat all of my students like my own children. Um, and every day this student, you know, the first week the student didn't come and I had a conversation, you know, listen, if you're going to be in my class, then you're going to come. There's certain expectation. You know, anybody that's in my class one day becomes a council kid. If you're a council kid, you're a council kid for life. And there's expectations, right? Family has expectations. I need you to come. The students started coming. Students started coming early. So the student would meet me at my door every morning, 7.15, 7.20, just to sit just to sit, just to sit. And I would, you know, started bringing like food, you know, we'd have breakfast together, you know, I'm like, why are you here so early? Because this is a kid that was not attending school. About two months in, 
we developed a bond. Um, he began to trust me. Mm-hmm. And he had a personal event where his mother was um, placed in custody and he came home, the door had been kicked in and police officers were there to split up the family of six. And so now you have all this stuff going on. He's being placed with a family member that doesn't want him. He comes to school the next day. And, you know, business as usual for me, let's go, let's eat, blah, blah, blah. What's going on? I see you're a little sullen. You know, he explained to me what happened. I knew that then his anxiety and stress level was going to be heightened. And I shared this with administration. Let's cut him some slack. Let's, you know, let's, you know, let's give him time to breathe, which they didn't do. And so he had an explosion. I mean, he literally went off. Some student said something to him he didn't like. He just exploded. Now that's common. If you step back from the situation, that's common. You know, people are uptight. They're stressed. They don't know what to do. And they don't, you know, they don't exude the best coping skills. And this is what happened to him. They shut down the school. They called um, the, the trauma team or whatever. They came. They, they took the kid out. It was horrible. Would not allow him to come back to the building, to the district. Thank goodness back then we had parent advocates who argued that no, this student by being um, stopped from coming to school was not getting the services, the appropriate services that he needed. And so we have situations like this where we enforce these zero tolerance policies, code of conduct or safety issues or whatever they are. And I'm not trying to make light of that because there is a place for that. But quite often what happens is when we do what we think is the right thing, we remove the student from the the, the program that they mm-hmm. need to be attached to to get the services they need. You know, um, so that's one. The second one is a completely different student. And that student was a student of color. Um, I had another student who was, excuse me, a white student genius IQ. That comes with its own set of issues, right? So here's a student who did not understand the need or necessity to be bothered with or by anyone else. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's okay. I mean, we have strategies for that as well. Like I said, I have my gifted extension. We have strategies for that as well. But he was seen as such a threat because he was so intelligent. Like we would have conversations like this and he would go into his classrooms and teachers would ask questions and he would have conversations, adult um, conversations. His vocabulary was superlative, right? The teachers began to get um, a little intimidated Mm -hmm. and didn't want him in their classes. So yet again, here's another student who on the other end, you know, even though like, yeah, okay, so you have this IEP that just says you have a classification that you are volatile, but that also came from the fact that he did not, he was not taught the appropriate coping mechanisms to understand that, listen, you know, this world does contain about 6 billion other people besides yourself. You know what I mean? So it's, you know, you have to learn how to get along. And um, so because they didn't necessarily like um, his arrogance, shall I say, 
they wanted to remove him from the programs that he was eligible for. Because again, special education is not just for those that are profoundly, severely um, disadvantaged, but also mm -hmm. for those that have exceptional abilities. From your educational expertise, what would you say like the main, if you could fix one problem with special education, um, what do you think that would be? I think it would probably be the identification process. Um, I think that has that is what has been um, negotiated, for lack of a better word, um, since inception. And that that's the beginning. That's where it all starts. But I think that's inherently broken, right? Because mm -hmm. I think it's different across districts. Um, it's different throughout the state and it's different throughout the country. So I know that there has to be an identification. Um, I, I just think that that needs to be a little more um, consistent maybe. Um, I think the timeline needs to change. I know that in the quest to make sure that everything is documented, right? Because look, you know, the pendulum swings both ways, right? Water finds its own level. So we have, we have an issue, we have a system that's broken. And so now everybody's scrambling to try to do what they think is right. But I, I think that sometimes it's prudent to step back and assess information to make a decision. So for example, there's a lot of documentation that is required for mm -hmm. uh, students to be classified. And paperwork is important, but the paperwork we do at Yonkers is gonna be different than what you do in Bronxville than what we do at Peekskill, which is my you know, um, home now, or, or in New York City. And the timelines where there are guidelines, okay, they look differently. So I think it might need to be just a little more streamlined. I think for me, that's where I see the majority of the issues because I see that students have issues or, you know, for whatever reasons, lack of performance, or mm -hmm. they struggle with homework, or they don't um, understand concepts. And it takes at least 10 to 12 weeks to have a meeting. That's, that's way too long. Mm -hmm. That's too long. Now I understand the need to, to have interventions and to be able to test those interventions but I'm thinking, you know, the, the process that we use here is, you know, you identify, you know, um, the, the issue or the, the child, you have a meeting, a team meeting, you talk about interventions, you put those interventions into place, you measure, you monitor and measure those interventions, then you have another meeting to, to do more interventions. We're meeting out now. Now we're already at annual reviews because annual reviews start in January. School year starts in September. And so it's this vicious cycle of making sure everything is well documented so that the purpose of you documenting is completely forgotten about. Thank you, Ms. Council, for furthering discussion towards the problems in special education. Tune in next time where I've sat down with two other educators in the Westchester area.